0: I think theology is for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand
1: an exegetical approach.
2: I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something?
1: Welcome to Theology Unplugged. Michael Patton here, joined by Sam and Tim and JJ. JJ, welcome again. Back to the fold. Thank you for returning. They, they went out from us because they were not among us was the statement right after you left, but now um, you have come back to us, and so we're reassessing that podcast.
0: Yeah, and like, what is it, like uh, the dog returns to its vomit <laughs> <his. So> here. <laughs> that that's the other side of the it. same <laughs> coin. <laughs> I have no comment.
1: Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing good. What are you I'm searching through here?
3: Oh, I'm just looking, uh, I'm loving R.C. Sproul's uh, kind of new book, Are We Together? A Protestant Analyzes Roman Catholicism. Good resource. I was just uh, getting to a chapter that I was thinking about.
1: All right, well, good. Well, guys, we're going to be uh, picking up a new, no, not a new one. We did a did a political broadcast last time. Yeah. Um, and uh, posting these one right after the other uh, to get back to our subject on Roman Catholicism. JJ, you, you haven't been in here for the Roman Catholicism one yet, have you? I haven't. I'm excited. But did you catch up so that you can know all about Roman Catholicism? No, or... I wish I
2: had. I'm so vain, I only listen to the ones that I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> hey,
3: real That's quick, good. too.
2: This is coming out close to we are
3: approaching Black Friday. And uh, black Friday at the credo house is actually one of the biggest days of our year. Uh, Carrie, who does our inventory, uh, fulfills our orders and some other things. It is her biggest day of her year because she is last year. I think we sold almost 4,000 DVDs on black Friday Mm -hmm. and she, uh, sends out every one of those 4,000 DVDs. And, uh, so just to let you know too, keep your eyes peeled and your, or look for that if you're not on our email list or on the, you'll see it on the blog and all sorts of stuff. But basically we offer our curriculum, small group curriculum, study curriculum, all those things that try and do it in a way that it's, uh, it's, it's accessible. It's going to be deep, but it's it's not watered down, but you're you're actually going to be able to go through it, and it's not going to put you to sleep. And if you're skeptical, if you're postmodern, all those things, we try and create it just for you. Uh, But just to let you know, we sell on Black Friday. So the Friday after Thanksgiving, we sell our curriculum at the cheapest price that we do all year, and we purposefully do that. So there are times in the summer where we're like, hey, let's do a sale, and we're always like, okay, but we can't get close to Black Friday because Black Friday numbers are always unique, and so keep your eyes out for that. All right, A Credo product. house,
2: no. even reforming Christmas shopping. Instead of buying your spouse a, a tie or perfume they'll never wear, you can actually buy them something useful. Yeah, yeah. we got gift certificates,
3: We've got gift certificates. You can buy them some discipleship stuff, some theology stuff, if they ever want to go deeper. Uh, and then give them, get them a pound of coffee and a T-shirt and a coffee mug, too. Yeah.
2: Maybe not your five year old though. They might cry if you gave them a theology D V D. Actually yeah, they might cry but, if you gave them a the coffee. One of our here.
3: biggest selling curriculum is called Big Thoughts for Little Thinkers. And it is uh, it is for five year olds and we have sold hundreds of those things. Uh, so you can find that on our site as well. It's basically communicating deep theological stuff to a five-year-old. I, All right. So the, what do you got I, for I, that, on the huh? other
0: hand, am a Christian. I don't believe in giving Christmas gifts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. No. But we'll I, have, I'm we'll happy to receive them. I just don't give them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, good stuff.
1: Uh, we're continuing our series on Roman Catholicism here, guys. Uh, Going to be uh, talking about those evil... Pope loving, Mary worshiping, anything else, my yeah. son? That was Michael. Just uh, want <laughs> yeah. to be clear about who said that. Um, we're, we're we're talking about um, the the issues today that I think are central to Roman Catholicism. We've gone through and given an overview of Roman Catholicism, the similarities and differences between Protestants and and where we stand. I think as we move through this more, you'll be able to see uh, a little bit more about. Where we stand with regards to our thoughts on Roman Catholicism, I think the question always comes down to, from people's standpoint, as uh, can a Roman Catholic be saved? And I want to save that for later. Or does Roman Catholic Catholicism have the gospel? We've touched on it here and there, but we may save those for the last podcasts. But uh, having done the overview of agreements and differences, I want to focus focus in on a couple of them. Really, one of these two tonight, but or today. But I think. I think that these two express the central issues that divide Catholics and Protestants, and the central issues that we must discuss. You see, I've I've had lots of conversations with Catholics before. and uh, I'm not obviously a Roman Catholic, but I've got a lot of friends who are Roman Catholics. Got Roman Catholics who come in here to the Credo House. We've had we've had some many debates here at the Credo House with Roman Catholics uh, when we were going through our church history series. Um, so so a lot of interesting stuff but one of the things that um that that i think that from my perspective and the where i start on this issue is that i don't think if you're trying to get to a point where you are as a protestant leaning leading catholicism through the reformation and in themselves trying to convince them that the, that the Roman Catholic Church has gone in a different direction, does not contain the fullness of the gospel in the same way that Protestants do, I think you have to start on a road called authority. I don't think that it's worth talking about purgatory or, or the Mass or Mary or... Any of the canon, or any number of issues that you could talk about until you talk about authority. And so you can have fun discussing a lot of things and seeing the differences, but if you're really trying to get to the root of the issue that, from which everything else springs, I believe that it is the issue of authority. What is the ultimate religious authority in the life of the believer? Now, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but that's just my take on it, because it all comes back to that Michael, I
2: I completely agree. We know that the the debate that sparked off the Reformation was, in the words of the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved, Acts 1630? And yet, underneath the issue of justification is always the issue of authority.
3: Yeah, well, because it's an issue of who's... Who's calling the shots or who's communicating what needs to be communicated and then who's kind of policing the message or which that's kind of a negative concept or who's who's kind of the main vision caster making sure that we're keeping to the road and I think a Roman Catholic would point out that um, even seeing in acts 15 you know you have Paul who God is going to write books of the Bible through God is going to do many things through and you have you have him even making sure that his message it suits sits well with the authority and, and some of the, er, the, those early councils of, you know, you even see that that there was this kind of sense of uh, authority, making sure that we're all going in the right direction. And, uh, and so I think that from the very beginning, and we're going to, describe authority in a certain way, but but there definitely is this question, rightfully so. No one runs away from this issue on either side is the thing. No one says, oh, no, that's not really the issue. But it is this issue of kind of kinda who's the boss and, uh, and who, who gets to say uh, which way we go and the way that, that the Christian church should operate.
1: Sam, is that
0: right? Yeah, I totally agree. I recently um, spent a couple of hours with uh, some friends of mine who have decided to convert to Roman Catholicism. And no matter which direction we went, uh, whether it was talking about particular issues, whether it was uh, Mariology, devotion to the Virgin, or issues of purgatory, or whatever it might be, it eventually came full circle back to how do you justify your belief in that particular position? It's always an issue of, uh, must we have explicit biblical precedent for it? Or is scripture supplemented by something beyond itself? For example, the the tradition and the findings of the councils in the history of the church. And we finally, it, it, it became so obvious that we were, we were just on a treadmill. We weren't getting anywhere at all, making no progress simply because uh, we were at loggerheads over the issue of what is the ultimate authority to which we appeal. And if you can't agree on that, you know, if you can't agree on it, then we can sit down and maybe open up the text or or mm-hmm. read uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the findings of the Council of Trent and exegete the statements and figure out what they mean. Mm-hmm. But if you can't agree on what is the final authority, uh, whether what adjudicates, what finally arbitrates and settles the issue, is it the word of God alone? Or is it the findings of a council? Or is it the decree of a pope? Um if you can't decide on that issue from the outset, you're really not going to make a whole lot of headway in yeah. dialogue with between evangelicals and Catholics. Well, and it's
2: easy for us to get off on the wrong foot almost immediately, which I know this group won't do, but oftentimes dialogue breaks down between Catholics and Protestants because of Protestants' misconception of how Catholics view Scripture. They believe in inerrancy. <laughs> they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture in some ways. And so to say we're the the camp that believes in an inerrant word and and you aren't, is to immediately demonstrate to them that we're not really listening. Mm-hmm. Now, the question for them is: How does this inerrant, authoritative word interact with a authoritative pope, with authoritative councils? That's what's on the table, and so then the conversation starts to become pretty
0: complex. Although, not to provoke an argument here with my colleague, I don't believe Roman <laughs> oh, Catholics. Oh, argue away! Please. I don't believe they believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And maybe that's something that we ought to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean, now, maybe if you defined it in the way you intended, JJ, I, I could agree. But uh, that's a, that's a point that we need to address. He's nicer mm-hmm. to JJ than he is to you whenever he disagrees. Oh, I'm just saying. I know
3: that's okay, though. You know, Sam and I have a complicated relationship. so That's okay. <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: Let, let, let me let me just briefly try to define for our audience a little bit about Rome, what Rome believes about the authority, because I think that that is something that as we begin to argue as protestants we usually sh- say something like show me that in scripture and there that's foreign to them that mm-hmm. what do you mean show me that in scripture why do i have to and why why do i all of a sudden fall under this 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 banner of sola scriptura the scripture alone that you do but but everybody i think we all would agree and this is kind of a silly thing to say but it needs to be said i think we all agree that god is our authority right mm-hmm. i mean it's somebody might say, well, the Bible's my authority. Somebody else trumps them. Well, oh, God's my authority. And I say, oh, well, we already know that. Mm-hmm. you know. Don't we, we don't need to go there. But what we're trying to say is, what is our source of authority to God? What is the, the avenue that we get to the authority of God? How do we get there? And
0: How say, does God communicate his will to us? That's yeah. the primary question yeah. we're asking. And and we're, well, and
2: Sam, I think what you're going to end up doing as we continue to debate is you're going to you're going to show their position to be inconsistent, perhaps, would be the issue. So, to proof text, in Vatican 1, uh, 1869, quote, Scripture is revelation without error, end quote. So, they're oh, going be- to claim that, but of course, you're going to demonstrate that they're inconsistent in what they say and how they practice.
0: No, I, I don't disagree at all that um, traditional Roman Catholicism affirms the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe in the authority of the Bible, they believe in the absolute necessity of the Bible but they don't believe in the sufficiency of the Bible.
1: Well, we go back to the authority and we say the authority is God, God, and then we have uh, one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being God is obviously the authority as well. So Jesus, my authority, doesn't help us out anymore either. But what Roman Catholics and where we depart from Roman Catholicism is is essentially at where whenever Jesus gave to his apostles the deposit of faith, we believe that that deposit of faith was ultimately written down and that is the only source that we have to this deposit of faith that is reliable roman catholics on the other hand believe that there was part of it that was written down and part of it that was not written down part of it that was just preached and part of it that was uh uh, codified as paul says I encourage you to follow by what we have said either by word of mouth or by letter from us. They say by word of mouth or letter from us. And so there's two sources of authority in the Roman Catholic Church that someone else has to come in and interpret. You got written tradition and unwritten tradition. Every Catholic that is good says that they believe that this is from Jesus. And so the unwritten authority is simply the the this uh can be the same thing as scripture but also can add to the scripture and so you have this written authority and unwritten authority going through time down through the early church and you're trying to find the unwritten authority why do you need the unwritten authority because the unwritten authority sometimes interprets the written authority or adds to it whatever it may be so if you if you you've got to add a third element though in their their scheme of authority or you can't understand it think of a Think of a, a stool that has three legs, one leg Bible, another leg unwritten tradition. And then a third leg has to come in and that's the living authority. That is the church that can interpret these two. The church doesn't come in and give new deposit of faith. It just interprets the old deposit of faith. And so you got a three legged stool and the church itself, the living authority, the, the people who find themselves in the, the, um, succession of the apostles uh, part of the what we call the magisterium in the Catholic Church, and ultimately the Pope, who is in the seat of Peter, is the ultimate authority to interpret the two other sources, the Bible and tradition. And so why do we have to have that? Well, from the Roman Catholic standpoint, if we don't have that, then we have mayhem in the Church, and we don't know even what books belong in the Bible because no authority has come in and said what the canon is. So we have to have all three of these functioning rightly in order for people to have the gospel, number one, protected, and number two, discharged.
0: Right. So let's let's summarize that. That's very good. I think you identified the major issues. And I like the imagery. It's one I've used before about the, the three-legged stool. They would appeal to Scripture. They would say Scripture is authoritative, Scripture is inspired, Scripture is necessary, it is inerrant. Now, of course, Scripture scripture for them is more than the 66 books of the Protestant canon. They would include seven additional books of the Apocrypha, which, by the way, most Protestants aren't aware of this, and probably most Catholics aren't either. Um, The the, uh, books of the Apocrypha were not officially declared as part of the biblical canon until the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, Mm. which is an interesting item in and of itself. So there's one scripture. Second is uh, tradition, the, the findings of councils, such as the Council of Trent, such as Vatican II, 1962 to 1965, and the various decrees that came out of that. And then thirdly, as you mentioned, is what's called the magisterium, which is a word that probably most of our listeners aren't familiar with simply refers to the, um, the Pope working in coordination and conjunction with the bishops or the College of Cardinals. And they, uh, the Roman Catholic Church, believes that God has guaranteed or promised what they call the gift of infallibility, that when the Pope, in conjunction with the cardinals or the bishops, speaks from the seat of Peter on matters of faith and morals, God guarantees that what they say is theologically infallible and true. So you have these three elements that work one with another. However, and this is the controversial point, um, there is a hierarchy among them. Even though official Catholic documents say that they are co-equal in terms of their authority, the bottom line is, and Michael, you, you explained it well, I thought, Scripture ultimately is at the bottom of the, of the ladder here on top of which is oral tradition or tradition, that namely the, the, the conciliar uh, conclusions. And then at the top of the hierarchy is the magisterium because it's the magisterium that identifies which councils, in fact, are called by God and are invested with infallibility. And it is the magisterium which supposedly has the sole right to interpret the meaning of the biblical text. So in the final analysis the buck stops, so to speak, with the magisterium in Roman Catholicism.
3: Well, many times I'd say not just that the magisterium oversees the biblical text, but kind of this way that it created the biblical text, that that the that the word of God flowed through the church. So it wasn't just this thing that God just showed up on the doorstep, but it was that he used the the people of the early church to create this word that now they're being shepherds of.
0: Right. And just one other thing, just so people won't think I'm making this up. Uh, let me quote from the Catholic Catechism, which is, by the way, one of the documents that is acknowledged as carrying infallibility and binding authority on the conscience of of Catholic Christians. And I'm reading here from uh, paragraph eighty-two. Quote: As a result, the Church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted. So, right there, the Church has an authority. Not only to transmit, but to interpret the biblical text. Does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So it's very clear that Scripture and tradition are there declared to be um, equal in terms of their authority and the devotion and the reverence we give them. But who's making that declaration? It's the magisterium. So in the final analysis, it is the magisterium through the history of of, uh, written tradition in the councils. And then, of course, third on the list, it seems to me to be the scriptures. That's how the Catholic Church functions. And so when you're talking with a Roman Catholic, and like you said, Michael, uh, let's let's talk about the, the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Well, the fact that that nowhere appears in the biblical text, nor is even remotely suggested or hinted at even implicitly, that really doesn't matter because scripture alone, sola scriptura, is not the final and determinative issue as to what is revealed truth and thus binding on our conscience.
1: Well, let me real quick then say what Protestants believe. I mean, it's very simple. We do not believe Protestant at the Reformation. um, Number one said that this was a development in recent last 500 years of history, that we have this authority that was set up as an infallible authority, and it doesn't represent the, the New Testament, doesn't represent the Old Testament, doesn't represent the earliest church. There is no authority that is final except for the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate authority. And so that was part of the confession. Uh, The Reformation was sola scriptura, that the Bible is the final authority, Uh, not the only authority, but the final authority. And we need to emphasize that, I think, continually to Protestants, that nobody's ever said that the councils or or that uh, church fathers or that reason or that experience or anything like that are not authority in our lives that God uses. I mean, uh, John Wesley's quadrilateral scripture, reason, Experience and tradition, uh, I think, represent the best of Protestantism. I mean,
0: well, let's let's give a quick example of that so okay. people understand. Let's take the Trinity. Um, we look to uh, Nicaea, Council of Nicaea, Chalcedon, uh, Constantinople, Constantinople three eighty one, Chalcedon four fifty one, Nicaea three twenty five, and we look at the findings and the reasonings and the and the written explanations on the part of the church fathers concerning. The nature of the tri- the triune God and how the persons relate among and between each other in, in the singularity of the Godhead. And we we look to that and we learn. We, we derive truth from it. We say, yes, that makes sense, but ultimately we take those counsels and we sub- subject them to the searchlight of scripture. And we say, are these conclusions, are these are the terms that are used and the affirmations consistent with what is revealed in the biblical text. And if it's not, we reject them. So we subject these councils and these conciliar decrees and these confessions to the final authority of scripture. Because if we read the text and we came to the conclusion that the Bible doesn't affirm that Jesus is hamaousios with the Father of the same substance, then we would reject that. But we do believe it is consistent with the biblical text, so we have gained some measure of knowledge from uh, the findings of, uh, of the Council of Nicaea, for example.
1: And whenever we have these types of authorities, I mean, talk about authorities in our lives. You say, "Well, what, a, what?" Because, because I've I've heard this said: you can't have an authority unless it's an ultimate authority. And I say, "No, there's all kinds of authorities in your lives." I mean, the police are an authority in my life. Government is an authority. Uh, we just had the elections recently. Obama, whether whether we like it or not, is the authority. Is a type of an authority in my life. My parents were authority growing up. I have all kinds of authority that, from a biblical standpoint, I am to submit to to the degree that they do not violate my Christian principles. And so, whenever we talk about authorities in the Christian life, we say the Bible is the ultimate authority, and all these others are like like our parents and and things that we should fear. A lot of I fear the councils, you know, in in this sense. I respect them greatly. I respect the power of the Holy Spirit to work outside of me through through traditions and through church history. And if I come up with something brand new and I say, you know what, I just come up with some new interpretation about who Jesus is and nobody in the history of the church has ever heard of this. <laughs> you know, the, the traditions, I don't find it there. But, but you say, somebody would say, well, you know, of course, the Bible is your ultimate authority, so don't worry about the traditions that have gone before you. And I say, that's right. You know, let's move forward and let's start a cult. You know, and that's how, how cults sometimes get started. But I live in a fear of these guys, because what I do is I essentially say that God has worked outside of me, and God is powerful enough to, to reveal truth to people for a long time. And, I, and and for me to come up with something new should give me pause, great pause.
2: To quote my favorite Roman Catholic, uh, G.K. Chesterton, Tradition is the democracy of the dead. Theology is one realm where originality is not a compliment. Hmm.
3: Yeah. Well, it's because you're trusting what Scripture says is that every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit will guide us in truth. And so what you're trusting is that over 2,000 years, people who love Jesus have been indwelt by the Spirit. As they read Scripture, the Spirit is is teaching them what it means. And so, yeah, I think any of us, when we're sitting at our kitchen table reading the Bible, it's almost like we look up and we look back and say, Am I getting what you guys got? <laughs> you know, am I reading what you guys read? Because if everybody's saying no, what's com what's going through your head is wrong, because we don't believe in infallible people with a Bible in their hands. We believe that that all of us are sinners and we we all need uh, truth given to us from God, but then also we need to be guided in that truth, and this is the concept of the regula fide in the ancient mm-hmm. church and and ideas. That's why we do hold to councils too. That's why Protestants don't have a one-legged stool. You know, we do have. A, but right. here's the deal: Do we have a three-legged stool though? Do we still hold to that third of like of of that we are also under authority of our local church? Uh, we're also. Uh, is there a third leg that we would say that we just don't hold to authority in the way that the Roman Catholic Church does, but we still. hold to a three-legged stool
0: Uh, yes how to to respond to that I mean we as Protestants we certainly highly highly value tradition Mm -hmm. but we value it because it helps us understand scripture better it's not because scripture is subservient to some magisterium throughout the course of the history of the church Uh, We value it because Augustine or Aquinas or Calvin or a Luther or um, a Bart or somebody else enables us to better understand what our ultimate authority actually is saying. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the authority of the local church, uh, I think obviously there, I think all Christians are to um, um, live life confident and hopeful that the leadership of a local church is going to articulate biblical truth. Uh, well in order to guide them in their behavior and their beliefs. But um, there are a couple of guys sitting around this table in this room who attend my church. But I would say openly and to anyone, if you ever found that I began to teach something contrary to Scripture that was of an essential and foundational nature to the Christian faith, um, I you have the right... And uh, the responsibility as a believer priest to hold me to account, and if I do not repent of that, actually to leave and to depart. So there is a limit to the authority of the local church. Even- well,
3: so it's the priority. So the priority of Roman Catholic, the th- the three-legged stool would be, uh, first we have the magisterium, then tradition, then scripture, mm-hmm. where we would say a Protestant one would be scripture is at the top, then tradition under that, uh, then than a sort of Protestant magisterium perhaps underneath that
0: you no know, the the leadership of the local church yeah, uh, the, yeah and I, again I don't know exactly how Protestants would necessarily relate the the, the element of um, uh, how, how does for example the uh, the findings of the Council of Nicaea relate to the authority of of elders in a local body mm-hmm. I don't know that Protestants have ever are uh, necessarily articulated that or felt the need to, but certainly all are subject to the final authority of the written and inspired text of Scripture. Yeah,
2: I'd like to point out I'm I'm interested by Roman Catholic apologists like Scott Hahn that are going to say. But the church went off book, you know, it didn't have scripture in its hands in the way you guys define it. You know, Jesus didn't write things down. It was an oral tradition. The early church was collecting these documents. How do you think they functioned before they had the, the formulated canon? Well, obviously they functioned in the way the Roman Catholic Church functions today. So we are the church in the world that has the closest similarity to the early church. Uh, but I think there's probably a lot missing there because of course the church of the the Bible of the early church was the old Testament. Well,
0: we
1: got, I was a Gideon for a while. Once a Gideon, always a Gideon. That's what I heard the other day. So I just realized I'm still a Gideon. (laughs) Gideon was in here and said, told me that, but uh, we used to hand out. Bibles, you know, and we'd go to schools, we went up to the local uh, university and, you know, put them at the, put them at the hospitals or the, the um, hotels, wherever we could put them. Sometimes we'd give them New Testaments. Sometimes we'd give them, you know, full Bibles. And sometimes it was just, uh, we'd go out and I think there was these living water things that were the gospel of John, give out the gospel of John. Uh, we give them out to people and we say, Here, here's the gospel of John. Let's say that's all they had was the gospel of John. Some people, that's all they've ever had, all they've ever read. And some people that uh, have, don't, have never had a Bible, You know, maybe they get it translated and that's the first book they get translated. Maybe it's just John 3.16 they get translated, or maybe it's nothing they get translated. Somebody just comes with a message. If I go to an island and I don't have a Bible, and it's uh, it's people that don't have a Bible as well, they've never heard this. Can I make a church? Can I start uh, a congregation? Can I can I can I give a message that will actually convert these people and and create the same type of situation that we're talking about here of authority? I'd say, absolutely. I mean, I can give the gospel, and, and you say, "Well, you don't have the Bible." Well, I have. I have the message in my head. I'd say, but there's nothing infallible. There's no inspired uh, inerrant word that you're given over to them. Yeah, but the message is what transforms. The, the Bible is necessary for the church in order for us to to have the fullness of what God has given to us, but it is not necessary. I mean, you don't have to have a Bible. God never had to give us a Bible, and I concede that to Scott Hahn. He never had to give us a Bible in order for the, the church to begin or for the church to even flourish. Um, I'm glad he did. You know, there's all kinds of things he didn't have to. I'm glad he gave us the book of Second Thessalonians. He didn't have to; could have left that out. You know, we'd still would we be okay? Yeah, I think we'd all be okay. But it's great. He could have, he could have left out. You know, the book of First Corinthians. Would we be okay? Yeah, we'd be okay. But we'd be lately left out of something. And so to say, from our perspective as Protestants, when we say that we have to have this authority, we're not. I don't want anybody to misunderstand us, right? I mean, we're not saying that. Yeah, the the church had to have this Bible in order for the church to even exist, right? Good? Are we all good? Well, Sam, Sam's processing good. it. Sam, <laughs> wouldn't
2: you say from, from Acts 17, it seems like Scripture was still functioning as the norming norm when Paul's commending the Bereans for searching the Scriptures. Of course, that's the Old Testament Scriptures that are being referred to there, correct?
0: Yeah, and it's the Old Testament that's being referred to in Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 as well. Um, But we know that by extension that in the New Testament church, they had already regarded the writings of Paul as scripture. Um, So yes, I think what's most important as I'm thinking through this for our listeners to keep in mind is that as we begin to take up individual topics in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at justification and um, purgatory and indulgences and penance and what about the um, the sacrifice in the mass and transubstantiation? And we're going to be evaluating all of these issues and these claims on the part of Roman Catholicism in light of what we see in Scripture, and to the extent that we can aff- affirm from the Word of God that these things are true, uh, we will do so. But it's not because the Roman Magisterium said. To do that, but because we think that's what the biblical text requires. I mean, we do this, for example, just take take a, a contemporary illustration. We have um, a new genre of Christian book, and it's, I just went to heaven or hell, now buy my book. Mm-hmm. And people are becoming literally millionaires overnight because they claim that, you know, I just spent 24 minutes in hell and 72 minutes in heaven or whatever, and I saw bright lights and all sorts of ooey-gooey things. And when we read those books, and, and people almost want us to just simply accept uh, the testimony on the basis of, well, these are good people. Surely they wouldn't lie to us. But when I read what they claim they saw in heaven and it directly contradicts what the new Testament says, I'm left with one conclusion. They weren't there. Yeah. They might've had an experience. They might've had a a powerful um, uh, brain burp or something, but, uh, it wasn't uh, an experience in the presence of Christ around the throne because it's in conflict with the Word of God. The Word of God comes in and it trumps any experiential uh, claims on the part of any individual. It trumps any um, uh, council in the history of the church. It trumps any decree by any so-called self-appointed magisterium, whether it be in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy or any other uh, tradition within, uh, within Christendom.
1: Let me make this suggestion. This issue of authority is huge. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we just barely touched on it. I'm um, not saying we're going to turn the whole podcast into the issue of authority, but I think, I think oh, next time I want to move on and talk about other issues, but I think I want to continue to return to this. And, and uh, I want people to l- look at this and say, they made this claim that the issue of authority is the foundational issue that you're always going to be returning to. And I think we'll illustrate that as we move through and talk about Mary and talk about prayers to the saints and talk about, you know, uh, the, the deposit of, of merit that, uh, the treasury of merit.
0: Yeah. And,
1: and, and we'll continue to refer back to it maybe at the very end, get back to this authority thing. And uh, because I want to convince people, the authority is issue and then try to say, let's talk about it. Let's, let's defend it one way or the other, because I, uh, whenever it comes to the issue of authority, I sympathize with it because I'm like, I would love to have a living third leg to that stool. Yeah,
3: Billy Graham, right the Billy Graham stool. <laughs> yeah. well, be, well, and I think so too. I think an important thing that I want the listeners to really struggle with is this idea of what is the authority in my life? Uh, because, uh, and what we're not trying to do too, like I was just looking that uh, during the Augustine and Pelagius debate, they're having a debate over Scripture, uh, but they do ask the Bishop of Rome to give advice and to step in, and we'd say, well, this is a different time, and it was before the Bishop of Rome saw himself as being I- infallible, and anything that he says is true. You know, So they, they gave respect to the Bishop of Rome, and we saw that at the Council of Nicaea, that there is some respect to the Bishop of Rome, but what, what we want you to struggle with is today, in 2012, what is your authority, and because, as we get into these issues, if you're seeing that there is an infallible person that is in the Vatican and Rome, that will guide all these issues. But if you're seeing that scripture ultimately that Augustine was ultimately interested in what has God communicated to me, and i'm I'm listening to other people, but I want to know what God is communicating to me, and what we're going to offer you is to struggle with the idea is has God offered you? a Bible that you can have in your hands and that he is directly, it's, it's really scandalous grace that he, that he is offering you, you a little nobody, just like I'm a little nobody. He's offering you direct access to the throne room of God and direct access to hear what the desires of God is for your life.
0: And I, I, you just raised a point there and I don't know, Michael, this might be something we want to take up in the next uh, session, we we have to talk about the pope. We have to talk about the bishop of Rome, uh, because it's not just uh, we're not just talking about uh, an ecclesiastical office, or you know an interesting uh, turn in history where we see popes being deposed and others you know mm-hmm. falling into sin and others doing whatever. Uh, we have to talk about why Roman Catholics believe that God has guaranteed infallibility when He speaks on matters of faith and morals. Yeah, and where does that come from? why do we not embrace that as protestants why do we
1: question maybe we'll do an individual session on who is the pope what is the pope who is he you know the history of it and let's talk about that next time that's a good good reminder that
2: roman catholicism is monolithic in ways that the many theologies of protestantism are not because at the end of the day there's a bishop in new york there's a bishop in los angeles but it's what the bishop of rome says that really matters yeah all right thanks for
1: listening